What's up, Transit Church? Good morning to you all. Happy Sunday to you. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 40. We are at the end of our sermon series in Exodus, and so we're going to sort of see what this last chapter in this book has for us this morning. Uh, if you're here with us for the first time and we say, hey, thank you for being with us, underneath uh, the column, the center column of seats are a couple of Bibles that you can grab if you don't have a Bible with you. And if, of course, if you don't have a Bible at home, you can take that with you uh, as our gift to you. We're going to be looking at the last few verses of Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38. And as you're turning there, let me give a uh, just a thanks. Um, I don't know if you, you can see the remnants of the room here. We actually transformed this room. I shouldn't say we. I didn't really do anything but just show up a little bit early. Uh, but, I mean, we just had a, a host of people, three in particular, that, that helped us out tremendously with our, our first annual Christmas party and potluck. And we had a good time if you missed it, so be sure to be there next year. It, it was just a really good time. We had like a full-blown, like huge bouncy house filling the whole foyer. And if you're a parent with a kid, that's like a, a, a lifesaver, isn't it? It's like, can I have one of those for my house? Not inside preferably, but maybe outside. We had a face painter, balloon twister. That was, she's pretty, pretty, pop, pretty popular. Um, we had some cornhole. Uh, inside, we had some great music going on, uh, a little bit of dancing. I mean, church folk can dance, can't they? Like, you don't have to stop dancing just because you go to church. Um, I want to thank Veronica, Veronica Sisto. I want to thank Sharon Brown and Amy Bolster for just just their great work and, and helping us pull this off. And, and most importantly, for just like taking over like the all right, this is what this needs to look like. So uh, much appreciative for them and for their efforts, and uh, hopefully you all have fun. All right, so let's uh, read out loud together Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38, and then we'll get going. Here we go. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys... Whenever the cloud was taken up from the, over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you for a new day, for the... The sun beneath, the, uh, above the clouds rising, uh, it's your mercy to us. It's your grace to us as well. We thank you for it. We need it. Uh, we thank you for the gathering of your church. And Lord, right now, all around Kingstown and the surrounding areas are churches just like ours that are gathering. Um, and, and we do that because you tell us to, to not forsake the gathering of ourselves, but to do it all the more as we see the days, the end of times approaching. So Lord, thank you that we get to do this. This is not a this is really a get-to, uh, but it's also a have-to. So we pray uh, your grace on those churches that are meeting just like ours, for people standing in the pulpit right now, that you'd grace them with, with words from Scripture that speak of the authority of God and the infallibility and errancy of our Bible, of God's Word to us. Uh, but more importantly, Lord, that speak of the life that we get to have as we surrender our lives to, to Jesus the one who we celebrate during Christmas and Advent as a baby who was born in a manger, but who grew up to live a perfect life and to ultimately die on a cross for our sins. It's him that we look to this morning. Holy Spirit, uh, incline our hearts and our ears to Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 
Amen. All right, so we've been several weeks in this series. This marks the end of it. And uh, we've covered a lot of ground, particularly looking at the theme of redemption. And here's what we've said all along that redemption is. Firstly, it's rescue. Uh, it's this picture of uh, I've been capsized in an ocean that, you know, the, uh, I'm like in the water. I don't know how to swim. Unless someone comes and saves me, I'm going to die a, a fitful death. I'm going to drown. But it's also ransom. Someone has paid for uh, my debt to get me out of prison. And, and then we've seen a lot, this picture of deliverance. It's the, the fact that I've been saved from something that's too strong for me to break out or break free from myself. And that's what we find in the Israelites throughout, the, throughout most of Exodus. They were a people enslaved. They were under brutal, uh, tyrannical rule of Pharaoh in Egypt. They had been subjected to more than four centuries of slavery. And it's, it's as if, you know, so God brought them there through Joseph because of the favor on them. But in this moment, uh, early in Exodus, it's as if God forgot about them and he left them there to, to endure that slavery and also to die. But what we find early in the, in the story is that it, God has not forgotten them. He hears their cry and he has a plan of redemption. He remembers the covenant that he's made with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he rescues Israel from Egypt, and he leads them uh, on the way to the promised land. And really, it's, it's in between these circumstances of their life. You got the uh, slavery in Egypt on one side and this impending journey into the promised land that we got to see like, all kinds of profound and powerful things that God has done just to redeem this set of people. Think about what we've learned in this book. We've seen uh, God break, uh, speak, to, speak from a burning bush, uh, a bush that was on fire that literally did not get consumed. We've seen God speak face to face with a man. Hadn't seen that happen before. Of course, that man is Moses. And at some point, that face to face interaction that God would have with Moses caused his face to glow. I mean, have you ever seen a man's face glow? That's pretty powerful. We've seen God bring judgment on the land and on the people and particularly on the king of Egypt. And he does that through 10 different plagues that shows off God's power and his might. We've seen God part the Red Sea, allowing Israel to walk through on dry ground. We've also seen God close up that Red Sea and destroy Israel's enemies as they were chasing them. We've seen God called this people, the, the nation of Israel, out of the wilderness, and he calls them to himself. And so he brings them to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God displays, in a sense, part of his glory. He, sh- he, he comes on the mountain, consuming it, and through fire and smoke and lightning and, and trumpet sounds, uh, God speaks to them, and he lets them know uh, who he is. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. And then through the Ten Commandments, basically God tells them, this is what our relationship is going to be like. This is what it will mean for you to relate to me and for me to relate to you. We've seen God, after that, um, lead Israel through the wilderness, uh, through a a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We've seen God provide for this enormous gathering of people, the miracle of manna every day, just falling down like dew on the ground. And as the grew dried, they had these flake-like substances called, what is it, manna, that would, uh, that would feed them for, for years and sustain them for years to come. 
And so these are just a few of the powerful and, I mean, just, just crazy, profound things that we've seen Israel do as God is redeeming them uh, in their ongoing journeys. In fact, I mean, th- this is a book of 40 chapters. And so we really have only covered the, the, the surface of all the profound and powerful things that we could actually have seen in Exodus. But here's, what, here's the, the cool thing about today. We get to see the most profound thing that happens in terms of Israel's redemption. This Exodus journey reaches a climax for Israel in chapter 40. And it reaches a climax because God's presence is going to fill the tabernacle. He's going to take his glory that was, in a sense, um, symbolized in this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire. And he's going to... uh, come down and subsume this tent, this tabernacle that Moses is going to make. And so really what we're uh, experiencing today is that all of this book of the Bible, this particular book, and all this, this whole story culminates here in this point where God ultimately is going to redeem his people. We get to see that point happen today. And, and here's the point. God draws near to his people. I mean, that's the ultimate point of redemption. God is going to come near. He's going to come near in the, in the sense that his glory is going to fill the tabernacle. And uh, we learn in other parts of Scripture that that tabernacle sits like central to all of Israel. And they will camp themselves around about that. And through that, God dwells with his people and he continues to call Israel uh, to see him as their God. Now, that might sound like a nice conclusion to this, this story of redemption. Actually, this is only the beginning of Israel's redemption. Their redemption will actually never stop. Um, but actually, the story lends to more. This is the glorious picture of redemption. And what, we, what we've said all along is that everything that Israel ex- experiences in their redemption is also our story. Their story is our story. And here's how that story goes. Israel's story of deliverance from slavery mirrors our story of deliverance from sin, Satan, and death. That God saving and providing Israel and being faithful to Israel mirrors how God saves and provides and is faithful to us. That God's promise to Israel that he would be, uh, they would be his people and he would be their God is extended to us and it mirrors Uh, what God says in terms of his promise that he would dwell with us and in us by the Holy Spirit when Jesus comes and sends the Holy Spirit to us, that God's direction and guidance for Israel all of those years in the desert um, and eventually getting them out of slavery and leading them to the promised land mirrors how God uh, guides and directs us to our own promised land, uh, a promised land that we anticipate and long for. That's really what Advent is. It's this anticipation that God is going to come. He's going to come back in the person of Jesus, and he's going to take us to uh, a new heaven and a new earth. That literally is our promised land. That's what we celebrate during Advent. So last week we found ourselves that uh, found out through Scripture that God was ready to bring Israel into the promised land. Nick unpacked um, just this beautiful passage in Exodus 33, verses 1 through 3. You can look at them on the screen. I won't read them. And here's what God, is, God says to, to Moses. He says, uh, all right, Moses, I'm ready to bring you into the promised land. Actually, I'm going to give it to you. you you're gonna, you get to experience all the blessings of the promised land, literally a land flowing with milk 
and with honey. I'm going to drive out all the nations that currently occupy it. I'm going to give you this beautiful land that's going to be able to sustain you and supply all your needs uh, for the coming years. But here's the thing. I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to go with you, verse 3 says, because you're a stiff-necked people. You're rebellious. You're stubborn. You don't listen to me. You don't do what I say. And lest you forget, my presence is a consuming fire. And because you're so stubborn and stiff-necked, if I dwell too closely with you, very likely the consuming fire of my presence is going to consume you and you'll be no more. And so here you go. You have the promised land. You have the blessing of all that I promised to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But but I'm not going to go with you. And what's happening here in this moment with God and with Moses and the people of Israel probably listening in as intently as they can uh, is significant because the whole book hinges on this moment right here. The story of redemption has been leading up to this point where God would rescue, ransom, and deliver Israel. That he'd give them this land. But here's the thing. The land would only be beneficial to them because God was going to be there with them. He was going to dwell there with them. And yet, here's that, I mean, they get to the very point they're going to go in, and here's what God says. Here you go. You go in. I'm not going with you. And look what Moses says in response in verse 15 and 16. He says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Important words from Moses. Moses he, he understands the intensity of the moment. If, if God doesn't go with us, then, then Lord, don't send us. So I want to conclude our series in Exodus by looking and asking three questions. And the first one starts right here with this moment with Moses and God and this opportunity to go into promised land. And here's the first question, which is better? Is it better for us to have God's blessing or is it the, better for us to have his presence? Said differently, would you be satisfied with heaven without Jesus? So if everything were perfect in your life, you had everything that you could ever imagine, everything that you ever want. But in the place where you are with everything that you could ever imagine and everything that you could ever want, Jesus and God's presence would not be there. Would you want that? Would that satisfy you? Because that's what's going on here with Moses and with God and the future of, of, of Israel. Do you see what Moses does here? They're, I mean, they're in the wilderness, and the wilderness is called the wilderness for a reason. It's not that pleasant of an experience, right? But God has intent to bring them into a place that they would just, their, their mouths would drop. It's like, oh, look how beautiful and gorgeous it is. And look, there's all these things that is, are going to satisfy our needs. And Moses knows that they're on the precipice of that. They're on the precipice of the promised land. And God tells Moses, hey, I'm going to give you what I promised. You get the blessing, but you don't get my presence because you're stiff-necked, you're rebellious, you're stubborn. But I mean, the promised land is not a place Moses understands to enjoy the promised land. 
The promised land is not a place just to enjoy the promised land. Guess what the promised land is? It's a place that we're supposed to enjoy God and his presence. So Moses gets it. What does he say? He says no. He says, you know what, God? It's, it's, it's not worth going into the promised land if I can't have you. Trying to enjoy the blessings of the promised land without the God who created it would be futile. And so let's ask ourselves, would we be satisfied with having everything that we could want or even imagine, but not getting God's presence? Moses' answer was no. And you have to consider the circumstance, the, 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 the circumstance they were in. They were in the wilderness. And I mean, think of the worst place that you could be. Like if you're military, out in the field, it's raining cats and dogs, thunder and lightning, it's cold. I mean, I'm thinking of ranger school in my mind on a patrol that I failed. Like, it was a, a bad night, and it ended in failure. And then multiply that times 100 or so. I mean, that's kind of like the wilderness. And then they have an opportunity to go into a land flowing with milk and honey, and Moses gets it. He says, you know, we don't want the promised land without you. And here's a point where hopefully the story of Israel, particularly Moses in this moment, matches our story, Transit Church. God has promised to us heaven. He's created this perfect place for us. Jesus has saved us. And if you're following Jesus, we are those people like Israel in the wilderness, and we're on our way to glory. That's what God has intended for us. Our promised land is, the, is heaven. This is the picture that we're given here. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, would we be satisfied with heaven without Jesus? Would you choose blessing over presence? Would you be satisfied with a place of no sicknesses or death or, or disease or, or war? Would you be satisfied with a place where people don't die from cancer, where kids don't die before their parents, where there's no illness, no murder, no broken relationships? In fact, everyone perfectly loves each other and cares for one another? Would you be satisfied where a place, there's no injustice? In fact, purpose, perfect justice is always done. But, but would you be satisfied with that place without Jesus? It's like a parent who, well-intended, wants to give their kid everything, perhaps kind of to make up for the things that they lacked when they were growing up. And so they have a good job. They move into a nice neighborhood. They got a nice house. They got a nice car. They have kids, and they start giving their kids nice things. And to give their kid nice things, of course, they, they work a lot. In fact, they work their hindies off. And in all of their working and their doing to give their kids nice things in this nice environment, they end up not being able to enjoy all the, thing, the nice things they're able to give their kids. And at some point, you know, when the kids are young, they're like, I mean, they're loving it. Like, I got all this stuff. This is nice stuff. I love it. Give me more. Give me more. But as the kids grow up, guess what happens? They start realizing, you know what? This stuff is just stuff, and I think I want my parents. I think that's what's happening here with Moses. Moses says literally to God, I don't want your stuff, God. I want you. But here's the way Moses says it. This is so, this is beautiful. It's beautiful. Verse 18, he says, show me your glory. That's Moses saying, Lord, I don't want the blessing of the promised land. 
I want you, and if I can't get you, don't even, don't even take me there. So by the time we reach chapter 40, the people of Israel had already seen some of God's glory. Think about the, the things that we've read and discussed already. They had, seen, they had seen God's glory in the deliverance from Egypt. They had seen it in the fire and smoke of the mountain. They had seen it in the pillar of cloud and the fire that protected them from Pharaoh's army and guided them through the, through the wilderness. Moses had seen God's glory up on the mountain a couple of times, and so had Israel's elders. But the reality is both the people and Moses were still waiting for a fuller revelation of God's glory. They, they knew that there was more of God that they were supposed to be experiencing. In fact, God had promised it to them in earlier chapters. Look at verse 20, uh, chapter 29, verse 44. God says, this is, this is, to set this up, this is a, a, a few months after they come to Mount Sinai. God gives them the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up to Mount, uh, back up on the mountain, and he's getting the full revelation of, of the law, those 600-some-odd commands that they're supposed to follow. And it's just shy of Moses coming back in Exodus 32, where Israel's made a golden calf. And so these are God's words. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am their God. So what is God saying? He's promising them their, his glory, a full manifestation of who he is. Glory, interesting word. I mean, that's a hard word to tell somebody. What I mean, what is Glory. What Israel experienced in terms of God, their perspective of God, is it was a theophany. It was an appearance of God. And scholars say it was, it was a visible manifestation of the invisible God. The word glory means weight or weightiness. And so when we say God's glory, what we're talking about is the weightiness of the, the divine, divine being that God is. It's the divine Shekinah. Shekinah is a transliteration of the, of the Hebrew word dwelling. And so divine Shekinah is uh, this divine being dwelling, dwelling with me. It's God's manifest presence. God's glory is the infinite perfection of his triune deity. One, one pastor said this, glory is the whole godness of God. And so that leads us to my second question for us. Do you want to see God's glory? And even as I asked that, in a sense, you know, I'm, I like worship was good for me, too. I was like, yes, Lord, show me your glory. I was singing with your tiara. I wasn't singing quite as well, but I was trying. Show me your glory. But in a sense, I was like, you know what? I, I know if God shows me his glory, there's no way I could handle it. And that's what Israel is experiencing. You know, a lot of folks say this. You know, if I could just see God, then I would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's real. And I believe and I would serve him forever. And we say that, but I mean, do we really mean that? So when Moses says, show me your glory, Lord, of course, Moses is not being fickle. Moses had experienced God and he's really saying, all right, Lord, I, I want more of you. But did you notice what God says in reply to Moses? 
and of course, this isn't literal. This is me like thinking through the conversation. But this is what I think God said to Moses. Like, Moses, check it out. I want to show you my glory, but you can't handle me, boy. You can't handle me. But guess what? I'm going to be nice to you. I'm going to extend grace to you. I'm going to let you see a part of my glory. I'll make my glory visible to you in a way that hasn't been shown to any man before. I'm going to show you my backside. But, I mean, God actually does something else in this moment. He actually speaks. You should look at the words that surround these verses. He speaks. He reveals to Moses who he is through these words, the the very character of his name. Again, Nick unpacked this beautiful text last week, and so I'll just read it and make no comment on it. I am the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so, I mean, get the picture. Moses just wants to experience God, and God uses words at first to convey who he is. Who are you, Lord? I am full of grace and mercy. I'm abounding in steadfast love. And of course, that verse will go on talking about the nature of the character of God. God says, you want to see me, Moses? Here it is. I'm going to give you a word picture. But I would like to suggest to you that God actually does answer Moses' prayer. He doesn't do it right here. He actually does it about 3,000 years later. And it's what we experience at Advent, the coming of Jesus. And so here God incarnates himself in the form of a baby. This baby is born in a manger, swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That, that whole story. So Jesus comes, and the prophets tell us his name, his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. And the glory of God is seen in the character of Jesus, and it's this glimpse of the glory of God. All the synoptic gospels tell us of an incident where the fullness of the glory of God was revealed to only a few people, and we see it in particular in Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 28 through 36. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of the face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And the voice, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. We find these same exact words in all the synoptic gospels. Verse 31 is, is, is important. Uh, Luke uses the word departure. That's the Greek word exodus. Ex, like literally, it's the word exodus. In other words, the question Moses asked God is fulfilled right here in Luke 9 and the other um, parallel uh, passages in the Synoptic Gospels. The, the question that Moses asked God, show me your glory, is fulfilled in Jesus. 
His request to see God in all of his glory happens on the Mount of Transfiguration when he sees Jesus. And of course, they're having this conversation, Moses and Jesus and Elijah. And Jesus basically is, is saying, hey, Moses, guess what? This experience that you had leading Israel out in the wilderness, out of slavery into the promised land, uh, that was just a picture of what I'm going to do. In fact, the, the exodus that you experienced and that you led the people of God out of, it, I mean, it doesn't even hold a, a, a candle to the, the great and greater and more true exodus that I'm going to lead God's people in, uh, in a few days. And so these disciples and Moses see God's glory fully and completely on that mountain, and they see it in Jesus. And if you're here today and you've ever asked this question, Lord, show me your glory. If you would ask, answer this question, I mean, do you want to see God's glory in the affirmative? Um, I mean, here's the deal. You don't have to have a Mount of Transfiguration experience. The Bible commends to you Jesus. It says, look to Jesus. Moses' answer, Moses' question is answered in Jesus. Here's what the Bible says, John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know this gospel writer, John? He was one of the people on the mountain of transfiguration. Now, I don't know if you realize, I mean, they were afraid. That's, that's what God's glory did to Peter, James, and John. At first, they were engulfed in this, this beautiful picture of the manifest presence of God, and they didn't know what to do. And so Peter, being the impulsive kind of person that he is, says to Jesus, all right, I'm going to make some tabernacle. I'm going to make some little tents for you. And, of course, he just gets cut right on off. As, as God speaks and um, sort of pushes Peter to the side. But the point here is, is I mean, the, 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 the word dwelt means tabernacle, which is what they were about to see. Uh, we're about to see in Exodus 40 the presence of God, the glory of God fill the tabernacle. And John says that's what Jesus does. Jesus tabernacles among us, the person of God in the flesh, dwelt among us. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul says to the church at Colossae, you get to see all of God. That, that phrase, God's glory, is the godness of God. Guess what? The godness of God is, is Jesus himself. And Paul says, we get to see that. The fullness of God, pleased to dwell in Jesus. And here's the, here's the unique thing about this glory of God. Paul would go on to say the church at, at Corinth, we only see this dimly. It's like looking through a, a, bottle, you know, a thick glass, and you can see some figures behind it, but you can't quite make out what it is. 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see clear, uh, see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been made known. And so we don't see as clearly as Moses saw. We don't see as clearly as Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so, same way Paul says, you know what? We don't see um, super clear. It's kind of cloudy. But it's going to be made more clear as we... Go on and still and follow Jesus. We're going to see him face to face, not in a mirror, but face 
to face the glory and radiance and the fullness of the glory of God. And we're going to see that in Christ just as Moses did. And so now we come to, I know that's been a long introduction, right? Now we come to chapter 40. And, and to, that, to be honest with you, I mean, if you start reading the words at verse 1 and go all the way through, this is one of those chapters where you're like, oh, I think I might have to skim this. Or, or I might have to like uh, just like speed read. Or like some of us, we just skip that part and go where we find more narrative. I mean, there's some detail here. I mean, it's, it's exact detail. I mean, what we get in, in Exodus 40 is like all the instructions that God gives to Moses on how to build the tabernacle. And so I'm going to help us. I'm not going to read those. <laughs> I'm not going to read those. Uh, but, but here's what these verses are pointing us to. They're pointing us to Jesus and all the intricate details that you see in the building of this tent, this tabernacle that would hold God's glory, we're seeing character, the, the character of Jesus, the, the, the ways that he would feel, fulfill being a prophet, a priest, and a king. And all of these artifacts, even the curtains down to the thread, would be um, fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. And if you would go and look at Exodus 35 through 40, you get to see the people carry out all these instructions to a T, but now we get to the culminating event in Exodus. This whole book is building up to this moment, God's presence finally entering and indwelling God's people in that tabernacle. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the ta- over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out, but if the cloud was not taken up, then he did not set out to the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the host, uh, sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Here's what this is. This is the promise of God fulfilled. God has become their God. He has um, tabernacled himself among them. He's taken all of his glory and um, consumed this tabernacle that Moses built. That's why it had to be built to its exact nature, because it's, I'm not going to go in something uh, that's not perfect. And so God set them free from slavery in Egypt, not just for freedom's sake. He set them free so that he would be able to dwell in the midst of him, that he would set his presence in the middle of them. And why did he do all this? It's so that, you know, back to why uh, Moses, uh, God would tell Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So they might be able to worship them. So this is their place of worship. And so at the end of Exodus, God's presence comes and it fills the tabernacle, and we get to this third and last question. What is God's presence to you? What is God's presence to you? Or uh, the way that I like to ask it, are you amazed at God's presence and looking forward to the day when it will be fully known and experienced? I think that's what's happening here. I mean, these people are amazed. If we could, I mean, just read the words of, of their reaction when the pillar of cloud or fire goes down and consumes the tabernacle. There would have been, uh, again, thunder and fire and lightning and sounds of the trumpet, and they would have been in awe. And that's an important thing to notice, because 
what will happen in future days and, moment, and, and, and years is this moment will be lost. Because God will be so close to them that he'll become common. God, in the middle of dwelling with Israel in all of his glory, is going to become common to them. And it's just like things that become common to us. It's just of, of normal use. No matter how extravagant, no matter how expensive, no matter how beautiful it is, it might sit right in front of us, and it's just a thing. And God will become that for Israel. God and his glory, centered in the midst of Israel, is going to become common. And when a thing becomes common, it loses its awe. It loses its inspiration. And, I mean, it loses its purpose for worship. And that, I mean, that's going to happen for Israel like it does for us. We begin to forget that, I mean, it's this beautiful, magnificent thing. It's God dwelling in the midst of them in a very unique way. And that's what the tabernacle was supposed to point to. It was supposed to point to the magnificence of who God is dwelling with us. But the tabernacle in itself wasn't supposed to, I mean, for them it was a place of worship, but it was supposed to, again, point to a greater reality. The greater reality obviously being Jesus dwelling with God's people forever. Again, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, Father, full of grace and truth. That, that word that John uses, dwell, is intentional. And again, it means tabernacle. And the reference that John, the, the gospel writer John uses, goes all the way back to what we're reading right now in Exodus. And Moses given the, being given the instructions to build this tent. This tent by which God would tabernacle among his people. The same tent that God's presence has just filled. And so gospel writer John says, in Jesus Christ, God has tabernacled with us. And so in a sense, he's telling us, you no longer need to go and get a priest and have that priest wear special clothes and be specially ordained to, um, to atone for his own sins. And then you bring him an unblemished animal and sacrifice that animal and use its blood to uh, atone for your sins so that you can in turn be close to God and to his presence. He says, you don't have to do that anymore because in Jesus, the presence of God has moved from a place, even a place as grand as the tabernacle, and it's moved to a people. That's why John says we have seen his glory. One translation says we've beheld his glory and build in the building of the tabernacle and all the instructions for its glory and its splendor and the temple that would follow in the days of Solomon. All of that glory and splendor point to a greater glory and splendor that we get to see in Jesus who dwells among his people. And here's what the Bible says. Jesus comes. He lives he dies on the cross in our place for our sin, and he sends the Holy Spirit. And then what happens? We get an even fuller manifestation of the glory of God because the, the glory of God dwells in us. We become the temple. So while the culmination of Exodus is the presence of God 
the glory of God filling the temple. I mean, we get a better conclusion, Transit Church. The writer of Hebrews says, the presence of God dwells in us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, by faith, we have become the temple of God. And so the ultimate experience, the ultimate exodus, is the one that Jesus has already led. He's already lived. He's already bled. He's already died. He's already resurrected. He's already ascended as the one who reigns at the right hand of God. And here's his promise, is that we only see a glimpse of the true glory of God right now, but there's coming a day, there's coming a, a, a second advent when we will see God fully, we'll see him face to face. And here's the exhortation of scripture, press on to that day, press, press on to that day. Look forward to that day when we get to um, experience the second advent of, of Jesus together. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful. Thankful for this book of the Bible with all of its imagery of the, the grandness of the nature of the power and the might of God to set us free and redeem us. Lord, redemption comes in many shapes and sizes. For some of us, we just want to be set free from uh, some sins that we can't seem to break free ourselves. For some of us, uh, redemption is... Uh, just more of, of who you are, experiencing that in our lives. Ultimately, redemption is getting to dwell with you. It's experiencing your glory. And even as we sang the song today, Lord, I pray that you would do that, that you would continue to answer that prayer that, that Moses prayed. Help us to see that Jesus fulfills that. Not just on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he fulfills it by giving us the Holy Spirit. And so God, you have shown us your glory. You've shown us, shown us your glory through your word. We have the manifestation of God in us. We are his temple. You've chosen to, to, to live in us. And so God, make that a greater reality for many of us that we would know that God is with us. He won't leave us. He won't forsake us. Lord, a lot of times we pray, uh, even as we begin a church service, Lord, we pray that your presence would come and that you just manifest your glory in, in front of us. That's, that's, it's not heretical to pray that, but Lord, the reality is when we gather, you're coming with us and you're only here because we're here. So thank you. Thank you that you have chosen to dwell in us. God, we're not worthy. We thank you for Jesus because he is and he's made us worthy. And it's in his great name that we pray. Amen.